going to take my Bible. I'll bring my Bible. That might come in handy. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. They asked me to introduce Tim at the conference, and that was pretty risky on their part. <clears throat> and yes, it is a privilege to be here. I'm blessed. I got to bring my best friend with me. There she is. My wife, Ilana, going on 45 years of marriage. We have one daughter who has just turned 31, and we'd ask you to put her on your prayer list. She has end-stage renal failure. So for some genetic reason, her kidneys have failed. So three days a week, she's on dialysis. Um, so we'd ask you to pray for her. We have no um, background of biological background of why that happened. She's a, a, a blessed us through adoption. So if you remember to pray for her, her name's Rebecca. Um, as Tim said, we're from Minneota. This week, Wednesday, it was cold here. It was like 52, wasn't it? <laughs> well, Minneota was a minus 52. A hundred degrees difference on your cold day. <laughs> that was the wind chill. Actual temperature was like 32 below, but with the wind, uh, it, it's 52 below. It really doesn't matter, it's cold. Um, but it's great to be here. It's, it's kind of a miracle that I'm here for a whole bunch of reasons, but one of, it, one of them is because of the partnership uh, that we've been introduced uh, to. We met uh, three, four years ago in Savannah, Georgia, and we've been so blessed, um, especially with Trinity. You guys have blessed us beyond all those other churches that are in the partnership. I linked up with Tim early on and just heart to heart, two men who love the Lord, and we just were one together. Um, we were so blessed then to have a mission team come from Titusville. And I don't know the team. We had Alex and Melinda. We had Tim and Kim's son, Timothy, with us. We had King Bill. You can ask him about that later. <laughs> and Richard also there, and Richard. And if they are a cross-section of your church, Wow, you have a church. Because these guys, um, if I ever go on a mission like that, I want to be at least half as good as these guys were to us. The way they served us, the way they supported us, the way they came into the community. And we live in a small community. You, they all attest to that. People knew they were not from Minneota. You know, they just knew that. But they also knew they were linked to Bethel Fellowship Church. And uh, we, you, you know the, the work we painted up a house and did some repair work. Uh, Bill oversaw the building of a front entry because the old one had rotted and it was just, it was no good. And so he rebuilt an entry and a, a, a step there for her. Um, Richard was doing the painting. Alex and Melinda were doing everything under the sun and Timothy was the same. He was up high in the scaffolding and wherever he needed to be. And we just worked hard. We served. We actually had a temperature. One of those days was 104. So that's the swing we get in Minnesota. We definitely get four seasons. Um, some of them don't last very long, <laughs> but we get four seasons. But anyway, that ripples across our community because it's small, 1,400 people. And we had people stopping by in their cars asking who we were. We put up signs, you know, Mission, you know, Minneota Bethel Fellowship Church. We had uh, somebody offered to send, uh, donate some money for the work we were doing on this house. We had people uh, mention to me and say, if there's a church in Minneota that is truly Christian, it's you guys. We see what you do in the community. Um, the lady's house that we painted, um, she told me, every day I come home, 
I look at my house and I'm blessed to see it. We had neighbors tell us, we're so glad you did it because it was ugly. <laughs> um, this lady stopped over about a month ago. She called me on the phone and, you know, I hadn't seen her for a couple months. Um, but she said, can I stop by? I have something I want to give you. I said, sure. So she stopped by and she gave the church a check for $100. Now that's a lot of money for her. And she said, I just want to give something back to the church. So she donated the church. So we made an impact and we could not have done it without Trinity, without the five that, that you guys sent up to us. It was so, such a privilege to have them. We love them. You know, we've just been joined together. So really love it. And I love you guys. And again, if there are any, any indication of who you are, Man, I bow to all of you. Uh, they were wonderful people. So uh, the partnership's been wonderful that way and meeting men, different men from the partnership. So I'm so glad that it, we, we searched for a place for years to find some people we could link to. Um, and so I've been blessed that the Lord brought us to this point. So thank you. Welcome also from, or I want to bring you a welcome or thank you, a greeting from our home church, Minneota, Minnesota. Uh, Bethel Fellowship Church, the saints there greet you. They're praying for you as we've prayed for them and praying for one another, a great uh, group of people. Um, so greetings from Bethel Fellowship as well. Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into Romans chapter 1, okay? Father, we thank you for this privilege that we have, Lord, to partake of you, Lord, through the emblems of communion, but Lord, in reality, that we can be bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh, that we can commune with you, a holy God, a holy God, the authority, the supreme, the sovereign of all things, Lord, that we have a relationship with you. We thank you this morning. Father, I ask that as we look into your scriptures today and, and look at what is the gospel. Lord, would you empower your word today? Lord, would you uh, speak through me? Lord, um, use my mind, Lord, as your instrument. Lord, I just surrender my being to you, Lord, and ask that you would speak to us. Lord, we all want to hear from you today and be challenged today and be encouraged today. And, and uh, Lord, so I ask that you would do that. Holy Spirit, would you come and speak to us today? Apart from you, we can do nothing. So come and speak to us this morning, Father, I pray. I thank you for the service that has already taken place. I've been blessed and encouraged, Lord. But would you come now and speak to us as we look into the scriptures? Lord, I need your help. So I just ask you to help us then, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, where to begin? Romans chapter 1, um, verses 16 and 17. That's kind of where we're going to land. I'm not quite sure um, how I'm going to work through this. One verse is big to me. I mean, I can spend weeks on one verse. And um, so how to get through this, I need the Lord's help for that. Um, but, you know, what a gospel we have. What a tremendous gift this book is that was brought to us through men who bled. William Tyndale was haunted and hunted most of his life because he put this book into English for us. Um, he not only was burnt at the stake, he was also strangled. They wanted to make sure he was dead. That was the debt he, that was the price he paid to bring this book to us. No wonder we love it and read it and God speaks to us through it. It was written in blood. 
other men as well, Wycliffe and other men that contributed to it. So what a privilege to, ha to have this book. Um, so my subject is the gospel. You are the gospel. Uh, when it was mentioned earlier about what do we preach, we really preach ourselves. Someone might never open this book, but they look at you and they look at me, and we speak louder than most things. We are the gospel. But who are we? Even as Christ is, so are we in the world. The gospel really is Jesus Christ. We have one message to preach. We've got 10,000 ways to preach it, but we have one message. It's Jesus Christ. The Father has, um, if he could be taxed, if he could be forced to put forth tremendous effort in the scriptures, his work is always, along with the Spirit, is to reveal who the Son is. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? And when we read the scriptures, it's all about Jesus. It's always pointing to him. Every story is about him. Everything is about him. I love Leviticus. All the sacrifices, they're all about him. Um, so anyway, here we are. Let's, um, let's read and we'll see where we're going. We're going to read the first seven verses, and then we're going to jump to verse 15. So I'm jumping around a little bit just to save some time. I need to be done by 2 o'clock this afternoon, Tim said. Um, all right, chapter... 1 of Romans, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning, what is the gospel? Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all then who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15. So as much as is in me, I am ready, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Yes. For the Jew first and also the Greek for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Wonderful scriptures, of course. Verse 16 and 17 set Luther on fire. Uh, was the seed and the, the kindling for the Reformation with those verses. I've got some quotes that different uh, people have said, different commentators. One commentator has stated that these verses, 16 and 17, are the most important sentences in this whole epistle and perhaps in all written literature. They are the theme and the essence and the concise exposition of Christianity. John Calvin said that they are the chief, uh, uh, that they are the chief article from which all other doctrines flow. It is the master, the prince, the lord, the ruler, the judge over all other doctrines. They uh, atone, that is the atonement, so it's, he's kind of bringing in justification, which is where we find it here. Uh, the atonement begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and defends the church of God, 
Without these verses, without justification, the church cannot exist for even one hour. So that's the emphasis they put on these verses. Um, you may have noticed, if we look in verse 1, it says that he is separated onto the gospel of God. So it's the gospel of God. And in there it would be the emphasis would be the Father. The emphasis, the gospel of God. If we look in verse 9, we didn't read it, but if we look in verse 9, there it says, For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. It's the gospel of the Father. It is the gospel of the Son. And then in verse 16, which we just read, if we look at that, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I know some of you may have a translation that doesn't have of Christ in there. That's all right. The next time you buy a Bible, spend five bucks more and get the whole thing. I'm kidding. I don't want, I'm just kidding. But I thought I'd throw that in there. But as we saw those three headings, it's the gospel of God. It is the gospel of the Son. It is the gospel of the Christ, who is the anointed of the Holy Spirit. So we got Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was anointed for burial. He was anointed for sacrifice. He was anointed for ministry by the Holy Spirit. So that's what the gospel is. It summarizes the Godhead, this gospel. It comes right away in these verses. So Paul says in verse 15, so much as is in me. Now, this was written, doesn't matter necessarily when. Um, I wasn't there. I don't think anybody was there when he did it, but it was around 58 AD. Um, Paul was in Corinth. When he wrote this letter, I don't know how tired he was. So when he says, as much as is in me, but whatever he had left, he says, you got it. Whatever I got left, I'm giving it to the church. And I'm focusing it on you. If I can get there, whatever I've got left, I'm giving it to you. I'm not just visiting. I am giving it to you. So as much <clears throat> as much as is in me, I am ready. I am eager. I am pumped up. As much as he's got left, he is ready to go. Um, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. And so I wondered if there was a question in the heart and in the mind of these believers in Rome, because who was Rome? If we took Washington, D.C. and New York City and we somehow could mesh them together, we might get a little bit close to what Rome was like in those days, what Rome was like. Add to that the total hatred towards Christianity, uh, the militant attitude towards Christianity, the atheistic view that they had of the world. The only gods were their gods, typically emperors. So I got some notes here on it. In Paul's day, Rome was the greatest city on the face of the earth. Its power, its political position, its pomp, its authority, its architecture, its influences were unmatched. It was the New York City, the Washington DC meshed together. Uh, it was deathly militant, hostile, antagonistic, uh, atheistic regarding the way of Christ. It had an intense and an expansive road system, we know, which God used then to spread the gospel. They thought they were doing it to gain power and to gain subjects. God did it so we could get the gospel. They could get the gospel everywhere. Um, but anyway, it had this intensive road system. It had a detailed legal system that protected all of its citizens so they could go freely any place their roads went. The, the, the uh, Roman citizen could go there freely, undetained, unhassled. That's where they could go. Um, they had um, so much going on for their... It was uh, 
They could travel safely and unhindered. It had an immense library. They had libraries all over in Rome. They had theaters, they had baths, they had basilicas, they had amphitheaters, they had Colosseum for great sporting events, Super Bowls, etc. Uh, it had a water system that traveled throughout the city. It had canals, it had aqueducts, it even had a flood system to control flooding. Um, it had a sewage system. Uh, there was a vast uh, resident, of course, there of, of military people, but on, beyond the military people, they had a police force of 3,000. They had an actual uh, fire department. They had firemen, 7,000 men trained to fight fires. It didn't work real well for them, but anyway, they had 7,000 that were trained to fight fire. It was you know, a tremendous city. It was it was educated city. Um, it had 82 pagan temples. The emperors, after their death, were considered gods, and not to worship them, not to acknowledge them as God, was treason, um, was being, um, well, you were signing your, your death certificate. Uh, so they were considered gods. They were worshipped. They were a thoroughly educated city. As far as if you were a citizen, you had, you had uh, uh, access to education. So a thoroughly educated city. Um, they were excellent and experts in debate, philosophy, all those things that was quite a city. Um, into this climate, our dear brother Paul says, I'm anxious, I'm eager to go there. Everything that's in me, I want to get there. And I'll tell you why. Because I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's why. He wasn't afraid of Rome. Rome thought it was mighty and big. Paul says it's nothing. God tells us in Isaiah that all the nations are but a drop in the bucket. He changes his mind. Oh, they're just baby dust on the scales. Well, they're not even that. He said they're actually less than nothing. That Paul, and Paul realized that. He said, I'm not afraid to go to Rome. I'll go there. I want to get there. I want to get to Rome. So in these verses, that's kind of introductory. In these verses, I pulled out three kind of headings. What is the gospel? Just the gospel. And then the word salvation and then a righteousness. So we have a gospel. Uh, we have a salvation. We have a righteousness. I want to read from a man named John Flavel. I don't know if anyone knows who he is. Most of my readings are um, old. <laughs> the, the stuff I like to read is, is, is quite old. Um, so John Flavel was a man who wrote in the 1600s, and he wrote this about the gospel. And what it is is he's written a conversation between the Father and the Son before eternity, before the foundation of the world, there was this conversation. So he writes about it, and again, in it, we find the gospel. So he writes, the father speaks, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves. And now they lie open to my justice, to the wrath of God, for justice demands satisfaction for how it's been violated. Or this justice will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of these men and women. What shall be done for these souls? And so Christ answers, Oh, my Father, such is my love too and my pity for them, that rather than they should perish eternally, I will be responsible as their surety. Bring in all your bills that I may see what they owe you. Lord, bring them all in, that there may be no after reckoning with them. At my hand shall you require their debt. 
I will rather choose to suffer your wrath than that they should suffer it. Upon me, my Father, upon me be all their debt placed. The Father answers, But my son, if thou undertake for them, thou must reckon to pay even the last might. Expect no abatements from me. If I spare them, I will not spare you. Christ answers, Father, I am content. Let it be so. Charge it all upon me. I am able to discharge it and through it, and though it proves to be a kind of undoing of me, for through it, or for though it impoverishes all my riches, it empties all my treasures, and then it's quoted, though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor. So though it impoverishes all my riches, yet I am content to undertake for them. Pay it, Father. Don't spare me. I will pay it. Then he writes, Blush, ungrateful believers. Oh, let shame cover our faces for how he paid the debt. What a, what a, what a thing the gospel is. Um, what, a, what a wonderful message is the gospel. So if we look at verse 16, <clears throat> for I am not ashamed. The little word for, of course, responds to verse 15, where he said, I'm ready to come. Why is he ready to come? This is the reason. I'm not ashamed. The word, little word for shows up five times in these three verses. Um, 16, 17, 18. But for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Um, shame uh, this being ashamed means someone who is something that's happened where I am sensitive. I'm afraid that what I'm going to do isn't going to work. If I bring something, it's not going to be respected. It literally means shamed, that I, I'm not shamed about the gospel. I'm proud of the gospel. I love the gospel. I've seen the gospel. I'm not ashamed of it. I know what it can do to, with Romans because I saw what it did to me. You know, that's, this is what Paul saying. I saw what it did to me. Jesus said this, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, when I stand before the Father, I will be ashamed of you and I will not confess you before my Father. Paul said, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed. Uh, different books in the Bible, I could pick the theme up, but I won't because of our time. But um, anyway, I'm not, I'm not ashamed at all of the gospel. There is no shame there um, for Paul. And he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We know the gospel means good news or good tidings. That's literally what it is. Why would we be ashamed of good news? If you found out that your friend had the lottery ticket, you scratched it off for him, and you found out that he won $10 or whatever, you wouldn't be ashamed to bring him good news. See, Paul was convinced. It wasn't a mental thing in Paul's mind that he thought, yeah, I think that could be a good news. In his heart, he knew it was good news. We'll get to the reason why. That's the, my last point of why he knew that it was the good news. The gospel does not tell us what we must do to save ourselves. It tells us what God has done to save us. That's the good news. It takes away. Uh, uh, Oswald Chambers said, Christianity is so easy. Salvation is so easy because it costs God so much. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Bad news is so bad that we have no hope. 
read Ephesians chapter 2 and get not even, even the first part, get to the, ba- the lower part of the chapter where it says that we were without Christ. We were without hope. We were without God. We were not of the commonwealth of Israel. There's five, six things there that we are, have no hope for. We were without hope, but God. And that's, this is the gospel. We know it is it's this good news. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the good news. Um, it also says that I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power. Not that it is that, that power could be added to it. The gospel itself is powerful. God has so uh, fixed salvation for us the way to salvation, the justification of unholy people made holy. Leonard Ravenhill said the miracle thing is that God can take an unholy man and take him out of the world and make him holy and then put him back into an unholy world and keep him holy. This is the miracle of salvation. And the gospel has the power within itself. It's not just a channel for power. The gospel message has power. And we need to know this as people who share the gospel. The gospel itself is power. This is what we said. This, the gospel is power. It is the power of God. Right. Who can limit the power of God? Mm-hmm. You know, God loves to save the worst. He saved me. He saved you. God loves to save the worst. There's nobody who is so far off that God cannot save them. And he loves to do it. He loves the underdog. I appreciate that. He loves the underdog. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 2 or in, in chapter 1 in different places it talks about the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Again, it mentions it, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness, but to those who are called both Jews or Greeks, it's Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is our gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm, I'll read it quickly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, starting in verse 1. It's a simple message. Um, it has to be simple for us to get it. It's got to be simple for us to share it. We don't have to complicate the gospel. So Paul says in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, <clears throat> All right. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you. He's saying this to the folks at Corinth. Which I preach to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believe in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. Who cannot understand that? But oh, that the power of the Holy Spirit would make it real to us. It's just not, a, it's just not like a mathematical calculation that we understand two plus two must be four. It's beyond that, that Christ died for our sins, for your sins. Peter, in his first epistle said, in his body, he took our sins, that we should no longer live unto, unto ourselves, but unto righteousness. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Christ died for our sins. The sins that you have committed, the sins that I have committed, the sins that we will commit, sadly to say that is a true statement, those were literally placed upon Christ on his body on the tree, that we should live now unto righteousness. 
For I delivered unto you first that which I received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scripture, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by, and then it goes on and lists all these people proving the resurrection, so that he died for our sins. He was crucified. He actually did die, but he actually rose again. This is the gospel, but he did it for you. He did it for me, because we have no way of reconciling to a holy God. No way to do it. So God made a way for us. <clears throat> so this is the gospel. The second point, and again, we'll add to that, is that this gospel, again, I want to talk a little bit about it. it has a, it's a power unto salvation. What a wonderful word, salvation. It means deliverance. It means, again, you could add a number of different words to it, but deliverance, wholeness, a way to be rescued, safety, healing, soundness, health. All these things is salvation. It is a, it, the opposition to it. In, so the opposite word in the, in the Bible would be destruction. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with John uh, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, but he left the city of destruction to go to the celestial city. So salvation is here. Destruction is there. And there's nothing in between. It is black and white. It is destruction or it is salvation. Again, it means wholeness, to be delivered, to be rescued, to be brought to safety, to be healed, body, soul, and spirit, to be of soundness and to be of health. Uh, in salvation a righteousness must be found. It must be found by which we receive reconciliation to a holy God. God is here and he's absolutely holy. There's no way we can approach him. Salvation finds a way for us to approach this holy God. Some way there has to be a way for us. We are dead in trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We were children of disobedience just as the rest of the world. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy. God had to do something because we couldn't do it. This is the good news is that God had to do something. He didn't have to do it. Let me ask you a question. How many of the angels that fell are going to be redeemed? None. Why would he save us? It's, why would he save us? He doesn't have to save any one of us, but he made a way for us. What a wonder this salvation is. It's, it's a wonder. Salvation, um, it is a deliverance. Um, I'll skip that part. Salvation is not only deliverance from the punishment of sin, it describes the effects of the eternal deliverance by grace. It reestablishes all that Adam lost in the fall. It, it, it breaches over all that. We have more in salvation than Adam had in the Garden of Eden. We've gained more. We've become more than conquerors through the death of Christ. What Adam lost, we gained even more. Um, again, it's, it, it's mind-blowing, and, and it's for us to discover. You know, the Star Trek, when it first came out, it was like, space, the final frontier. It wasn't. God is the final frontier. And we're to discover all that there is in him because of him making a way for us when he stretched his arms upon the cross. Come and discover who I am as his side was pierced and out rushed blood and water. Come and discover who God is. What a wonderful invitation for us. Um, goes on, so we're saved then from the, this sin. We're saved from the power of sin. We're saved from the pollution of sin. We're saved from the penalty of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. We're not there yet, but someday when Christ comes back, 
we will be saved from even the presence of sin. It will be gone. Currently, we're saved from the penalty of sin. Christ paid the price for us. We've been saved. It says in Romans 5, 1, um, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justified by faith, peace. The word there is acquitted. If I'm sure none of you guys have ever been in court and the judge said to you, as there was a, a crime brought to you and laid at your feet, and the judge says, I find you not guilty, you are acquitted. It was as though that offense never existed. It was never real, it never existed, and not only that, it can never be brought up again. It can never be brought up again. Amen. So having been saved by faith, you know, we now have peace with God, justified, acquitted through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the penalty. The power of sin, Romans 6 tells us, doesn't it, in verse 14, that sin shall not have dominion over us. Christ, through his resurrection, through his life, he has broken the power of sin in our life. I don't know, Hebrews talks about the sin that so easily besets us. There's sins that we're going to struggle with. We're going to always struggle with pride. Somebody said pride is like bad breath. Everybody knows you got it except you. Um, I'm sure that's true of me. Um, but there are sins that, through Christ, we are delivered from, broke the power of sin. When I was, when Christ saved me, he, I would never would have made it if he had not broke the power of sin, the power of addiction, the power of alcoholism, the power of one thing after the other, wanting people's approval all the time. I don't care anymore what people think of me back in my little hometown. They all know that I was a Jesus freak. Man, what an honor <laughs> to be called a Jesus freak. Wow, that was great. Instead of a hippie, you know, whatever else it was. But anyway, we've been forgiven. The power of sin has been broken. This is what happens in salvation. The power of sin being broken. And third, the pollution of sin. It, it contaminated our insides. When we mixed with sin, it contaminated our insides. Now, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, John, 1 John chapter 1, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, Though our outward man perish, our inward man is renewed day by day, cleaned on the insides, saved from the outside. Wow, what a salvation we have. And we will again be saved from the presence of sin. That day will come. Uh, and this he said, again, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone. Everyone, to everyone, because everyone has fallen. For all have fallen and come short of the glory of God. There's a quick definition of sin. What is sin? Anything that falls short of the glory of God. Wow. That's a big thing to jump over, isn't it? But we're saved from that. We're, 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 it, it's what, what a gift we have. Um, so it's for everybody, because all have fallen short of the glory of God. Who believe? Are you believing this morning? I mean, when, when I first read this, I told uh, Tim when I talked to him, I said, hey, I'd like to go to these verses. When, I, when this came to me, it was just exploding. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto everyone who believes. Am I believing this morning? Were you believing during worship? You know, if we narrow worship down to music, was I believing? Was I in touch? Was I in fellowship with Jesus? Or was I going through the motions to those who believe? 
Am I excited? Am I talking to Christ? Am I living with Christ? To those who believe it's continuous tense. Yes, I, I believe back in 1973 in the fall of the year, but am I, what does that matter? Am I believing this moment? Are you believing now? Are we believing? Am I a believer? That means someone who's doing it. Belief is an action verb. If we believed that in 30 seconds a bomb was going to explode in this room, God forbid, obviously, but if we believed that, what would happen? If we really were convicted and convinced of it, what would we do? We'd all go. We'd be out of here because it's an action. So to everyone who is believing, I can see if you're a believer. You can see if I'm a believer. My life shows that I'm a believer. Your life shows that you're a believer. It's action. It's love, not just in the heart. It's love given out. Um, it's, it's hatred towards sin and that. So there's the power. There's this wonderful power. It's in the continuous tense to believing. It's this great action verb. And the third thing that I want to talk about is that it is a righteousness. And this is so important. Um, so I hope you're not too tired if you can really listen. Not that you haven't been, but this is really important. It's important to God. Of all that I've said, this is perhaps the most important thing to God. Verse 17. This is what the gospel is. For it, there's a little word for again, for it, that is the gospel. <clears throat> for in it, the righteousness, not of you, even after you're saved, it's the righteousness of God is unveiled or it's revealed through this gospel. See, I thought it was all about me. We think it's all about us. So if I asked you this question, are you ashamed of the gospel? You know, are you ashamed? Anybody, you know, how many of us? Who's ashamed of the gospel? And let's say we all say, because we're good, we know the answer. We all said, no, I'm not ashamed. And I'd say, why not? If you ask me that, you know, well, why not, Tom? Why aren't you ashamed? Well, I've lived so long under the benefits of the gospel. It set me free from so many things. I, was, I, I had no hope in life. Um, the gospel has done that for me. It's, it's saved me. It saved this, it saved that, it's healed me, it's done this, it's done that. We could list a whole bunch of things that the gospel has done. But primarily, it's not for you. See, God had a problem. If he was going to forgive anyone one sin, he would not be God. Because God made a command. He said, the soul that sins, it shall die. And the day that you eat thereof, you will fall, you will die. And the holy God cannot even begin to contemplate being somehow mixed with sin. And he's put down a commandment that if there is sin, I'm going to judge them with an eternal death. He's right to do that. He can do that. He's our creator. What are we? We're just a chunk of dirt that God brought up and formed a body and breathed life into it. Who are we to complain if, you know... And so there's his problem. I said that if they sin, they're going to pay eternal damnation for it. Am I going to go against my word? I've got a plan. I've had a plan. So this conversation that we read about early on, uh, about him, there's this conversation. God says, I've got a, I have a way whereby I can justfully forgive them, but somebody's got to pay the price. And then when that person pays the price, and when this... God, man, will pay the price. It will liberate me 
Give me a reason for me to forgive them. I now have an excuse to forgive them because I have no reason to, I cannot forgive them. I will violate my own character and I will not be God if I forgive them. There's gotta be, I just can't do it. We can just forgive because we want to or because we know we should, but God can't do that. He couldn't do it. It was too, sin was too great for him. So if we turn in the third chapter of Romans and we'll see it here in the third chapter of Romans, starting in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. What he's saying there is that no one's going to be justified by the law because we can't keep it. You know, we, we can't keep the law. Love the Lord thy God with all thy mind. We don't do that all the time. With all your soul, we don't do that all the time. All our strength, we don't do that all the time. And love everybody else just like you love me and like you love yourselves. We don't do that all the time. That's just a little synopsis of the commands of God. And so none of us are going to be justified by the law. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, now there's a righteousness. We can never gain the righteousness of God by keeping the commandments. God is going to create. He's going to establish a righteousness. And that is what he wants to give to us. It's a righteousness. It's, it's, it's a gift of righteousness. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God. We're not going to have our own righteousness because, oh, I've, I've read my Bible every morning. This week I prayed my half-hour prayer every morning this week, and I've done all these good things. That, that won't stand us in God's stead. We need a righteousness bigger than that. Jesus said if you have a thought that's evil, you've already committed it. He raised the bar. You know, if, if I have anger towards a brother, I've already murdered him. He raised the bar. We're not going to make it. But God made this. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ in all and on all who believe. That's why am I believing? For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ. Now this is where it comes who God, the, the, the redemption that is in Christ, who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a sacrifice that appeases that, as it were, drinks up all the wrath of God. He absorbed all the wrath of God. Like I read from John Flavel, he absorbed all of the wrath of God. Every bit of notion of wrath or anger towards the sinner, Jesus absolved in himself. He took it all in. He was like a sponge who just brought it all in. That is the propitiation. God's wrath has been satisfied. He's taken it all in. Verse 25, who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Why? To demonstrate God's righteousness. It wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. Primarily, it was for himself. He wanted to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and yet the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God was in a sense in the dilemma, of course he never was, but how can he forgive us? How can he have fellowship with us? How can he love us when we've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? How can he do it? A holy God cannot do it. He would destroy himself in doing it, for he is a consuming fire, and he cannot be mixed with sin. How could he do it? How could he be just to forgive us? Here's how he did it. His son went and paid the price. And when Jesus 
literally took all our sin upon him and satisfied all the wrath of God upon himself, God was then free to look on me and say, if through faith you accept all that Christ has done, I can forgive you, and I'm just. God is just to do it. No one can point a finger at him anymore and say, hey, how, how, how'd you do this one and not that one? How, how can you do that? God justified himself. Jesus did that for the Father. No wonder the Father loves him. And, and um, so that's, that's this righteousness that, um, that we need so badly. Um, again, and those who believe it's continuous tense, it's the same. It's, it's just a wonderful gospel that we have. So that's my... <clears throat> Really, my third point there, and there's more in there, but we're, we've run out of time. So what does all this mean? What do we do with this gospel? See, we can understand it. We can even experience it. We can doctrinally talk about it. We can do an exposition on the gospel. But what do we really do with it? We've got to give it away. That's why we got it, is we've got to give it away, don't we? Um, I don't want to tread into um, Tim's week, uh, what he's going to share on. <laughs> but what do we do with it? How can we know it? You know, we can know it, we can understand it, we can explain it, we can debate it, we can appreciate it, but we must preach it. We must share it. Um, man's fall, his need of a new birth, his forgiveness through the atonement, the propitiation of another, that is Christ, leads to the salvation of our souls by faith in the risen, living, living Christ. These are our battle axes. These are the weapons of our warfare to, when we go out to the world. And of course, it's all done in love. William Booth wrote this. Do you know who William Booth was? Uh, he was the founder of the Salvation Army. Um, two, I'll tell you a story first before I read this. William Booth was an old man. Uh, he was dying, getting close to it. He was able to, with the help of someone, make it out onto the, the uh, podium for one of their huge conferences that they had. This was years after he started the Salvation Army. There's, their emblem, by the way, was blood and fire. That's what it says on, if you ever get close to it, they'll still have it. They probably don't know all what it means anymore, but it was blood, that's redemption, that's salvation, that's the gospel, and fire, the Holy Ghost, being on fire about it. So this old man, William Booth, shuttles out to the podium, <clears throat> and um, he stands up and he says this, while women weep, as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is one drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God in the gospel, I will fight. I will fight to the very end. One of the last things he did um, when they had the last conference that he was heard from, he was too ill to make it. He couldn't go, but he had written down his message. And so that person who was going to deliver the keynote message, if it could have been from their founder, he comes and he's got a little note and he opens it up, looks at it from the podium. It's one word, others. That was his one word, others. That's what it was about, to share the gospel, to share the gospel. Um, we have a rich heritage. I'll close with this then. It's, have you seen, heard of the fellowship of the unashamed? 
It's a little credo. I don't know if you've seen it. The fellowship of the unashamed kind of fits in, for Paul was not ashamed. I am a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have the Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of the living Christ. I will not back up, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My, presence makes, my present makes sense to me. My future is secured. I am finished and done with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless, colorless dreams, tame visions, mundane talking, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I am no longer, I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I don't have to be right, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by the presence, learn by faith, love by patience, live by prayer, labor by power. My pace is set, my gate is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough, my companions are few, my guide is reliable, my mission is clear. I cannot be bought. I cannot compromise. I will not be detoured or lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I won't give up, back up, let up, shut up, until I've preached up, prayed up, paid up, stored up, and stayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until he returns, give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes. And when he comes to get his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My colors will be clear, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen. Amen. Thank you.